Section 11 of Recollections of Life in Ohio from 1813 to 1840 by William Cooper Howells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Sue Anderson. Chapter 25 A Local Poet Removal to Mount Pleasant Working for Elisha Bates, Orthodox Quaker A Character Cholera Geographical Limits of a Pledge Removal to Chillicothe, Journey Thither, Buckeye Festival. The year was without any event in our little life. I got temporary employment with Horton J. Howard, who started the National Historian, and was then carrying on a small printing office and printing any books he could get to do. At that time he was printing an epic poem called The Napoleon, after the style of the Aeneid, being the story of Napoleon Bonaparte in the ponderous blank verse of the heroic pattern of Milton. The author was Thomas H. Jennon, a very eccentric lawyer of St. Clairsville, who had money enough to spare in printing a book that was never to be sold. This Jennon was an uncle of the Hatter Jennon of New York, who made himself famous by buying the first ticket to Jenny Lynn's concert at $500. Though T. H. Jennon had two very promising sons, he outlived them, and his property was willed to his nephew, who discharged the obligation by printing the memoirs and the posthumous papers of his uncle, and erecting a life-size statue of him in marble, which is the chief ornament of the cemetery of St. Clairsville at this time. I continued to work for Howard, mostly at press, on an old ramage machine, and by working very hard, I could make one dollar a day. The price was twelve and a half cents a token, and Howard furnished a boy to roll and wet paper, etc. It was not very steady work at that, and not likely to last long after the book was done. I made a prospective engagement to work for Elisha Bates about this time, and arranged to begin in September. Toward the latter part of the month, we moved to Mount Pleasant in Jefferson County, where Father had lived just sixteen years before. Here I went to work for Elisha Bates, on his monthly periodical, which he called the Repository. This was about steady work for one man, and would have kept me very closely. But there was another printer engaged on it, who did a good deal of the work, and might have done it all, except that there was some extra printing to be done for the friends' yearly meeting under the direction of Bates. The work was expected to keep us going, but Bates was traveling a good deal, and the repository was reduced to occasional issues. My fellow workman, whose name was William McGee, was much my senior, and was a terrible drinker. That is, he would drink whenever he could get whiskey, and would resort to the usual expedients to get it. He was always ready, as one of a convivial party, with songs, stories, and jokes. He sang remarkably well, and knew all of the popular songs of the times, which it was then customary to sing ballad fashion without accompaniments. He would go straight through Moore's melodies, and any of the collections of the songs of Campbell, Burns, Tanny Hill, Dibden, and the like, always including the Star-Spangled Banner, 
Hail Columbia, the American Tar, the Pillar of Glory, and the patriotic songs that sprung up in the War of 1812. He was also a Freemason, and invariably drew upon the brethren, wherever he went, for good cheer and relief from his personal necessities, which were usually pressing. He was so free-hearted and generous in his manner that everybody put up with his many weaknesses, and if he was at all sober, he was generally respected and tolerated even when half-drunk. If anybody was sick, he was ready to nurse them, and no matter how disagreeable the task might be, he was faithful to it. And when death came, he was as ready, and seemed to take a pleasure in doing the last services for the dead. On such occasions he would do anything that was to be done, and would put on a shroud or dig a grave, give notice of the funeral, and take a hand at the bier. With it all he was cheerful and lent some of his brightness to all about him. Of course he was acquainted with every family in the village, and made himself at home at every house, where he would enter at any time without ceremony, and often without knocking. Of his poverty he made no concealment, and if he was in want of something to eat at home, he would ask for it, saying that it was a duty for us to help one another, which he was ready to perform when he could. He was never humiliated by a gift of anything he could eat, drink, or wear, and as there was hardly a family for whom he had not done some neighborly service, his supplies in this way were pretty good. The consequence was that he did very little steady work and was in the printing office only occasionally. He was away on a spree, or looking after somebody who was sick or had died three-fourths of the time. It happened that cholera appeared in the country in 1832, while I was engaged here, and this seemed just to suit McGee. There was a Quaker family in Mount Pleasant of the name of Flanner, one of whom was a Dr. Flanner of Zanesville, who was looked upon as a leader in his profession. He was deputed by the medical men of Zanesville to go to Wheeling, where the cholera was raging, and see it, and otherwise prepare himself to treat it when it should appear in their town. The doctor performed his mission, and on the way back came to Mount Pleasant to visit his friends, and particularly three unmarried sisters who lived by themselves and with whom he made his home. He arrived in the afternoon and received several calls and made some, expecting to go on speedily. The next morning the whole village, then of perhaps six hundred or eight hundred, was terror-stricken to find that Dr. Flanner was attacked with cholera. The fact fell upon them with all the horrors of a pestilence. Doors were closed, and men walked in silence along the streets, except as they went solemnly to exchange information or conjectures as to the case in hand. It seems as if I could see them now, and how still and weird the day was. It was near the end of June. To the inquiry, who is taking care of the doctor, the ready answer was, Oh, McGee is with him, and has been all night. In fact, the sisters, McGee 
and the physicians of the place were all that saw him till he died, which was in about twenty-four hours after the attack. This was a triumphant time for Mac. He was the hero of the day, and was referred to as a man who could do more than others dared. He got all the whiskey he wanted free, and that without reproof for drinking it. One of the sisters was attacked with the disease, and Mac had to remain as nurse. A year or two before I went to St. Clairsville, Mac subsisted on newspaper prospectuses. His plan was to print a prospectus and circulate it for subscriptions, taking all the pay he could get in advance, and in the country farmers didn't mind giving him some kind of produce on this account. If they knew him, they understood it, and if they did not know him, they fancied they would get a paper sometime, which they did not. But he was not alone in the use of this expedient. The times were favorable to it, as they would not be now. Poor Mac! He has got through it all. The last time I saw him was in 1838, when he came to Martinville and called on me. He said he had taken the pledge, but explained the condition he was in by saying he was out of the township. The work at Mount Pleasant grew more and more slack till the fall of 1833. Elisha Bates went to England on some kind of mission and closed or suspended his publication, which was never revived. Having nothing to do, we moved to Wheeling, where both our families lived. I got a situation as pressman in a printing establishment where I worked on Webster's spelling book, Stereotype Plates. The press had a rolling attachment so that I worked the press alone, making a dollar and fifty cents a day. But it was hard labor, and after the winter's work I found that it was too hard for me, and I had to give it up. At that time, my brother Thomas was living in Chillicothe. He here made an engagement for me with Dr. B. O. Carpenter, who had just bought the Scioto Gazette, one of the oldest papers in the state. But it was only a weekly and a small sheet. Still, it was an important paper, and exerted a good deal of influence in the politics of the state. About the 1st of April, we moved to Chillicothe. To get there, we took the steamboat at Wheeling to Portsmouth, and thence canal boat to Chillicothe. The distance is 350 miles by river, and 50 by canal. The journey was a very interesting one to us, because it was new and in a new country, particularly on the canal, where we had the boat nearly to ourselves, and spent twenty-four hours in making the fifty miles. We thought this a speedy mode of travel. We left Wheeling one evening about the last of March, when the spring had scarcely appeared, and no blossom had put forth. The next morning, when we woke up a little below Marietta, the peach trees were in full bloom, and vegetation forward in proportion. It was like dropping into fairyland. But as we returned northward by the canal, the spring disappeared, and at Chillicothe the blossoms were yet to come. Yet it was an early spring, and that year, as I remember, the buckeye trees were in full bloom on the 7th of April. About that time, Dr. Drake of Cincinnati had worked up a sort of Ohio furor by publishing a sketch of Ohio history and the settlement of the state. 
he took pains to weave into this a description of the buckeye, which is a wild horse chestnut and indigenous to Ohio, and presented as the emblematic tree of the state, and to fix upon the state the term buckeye as a pet name. Several celebrations of the anniversary of the settlement of the state on the 7th of April took place that year, few of which were repeated. This was done at Chillicothe in quite a romantic fashion. They had, of course, an address and toasts and resolutions, and a procession with a ball at night. They planted a buckeye tree in a public square to which the procession marched, each man bearing a branch of the buckeye, which was then in full leaf and bloom, where they observed further ceremonies, and, surrounding the tree, dispersed to meet at the ball and supper. The report of all this was given at length in the Buckeye, a paper started on the idea of an Ohio nationality by William Carey Jones, who was then not twenty years old, though unusually precocious. He afterward became noted as the son-in-law of Thomas H. Benton, and as an adventurer in the West. Chapter 26 The Scioto Gazette and its Editor A Gifted Man Universal Genius The Political Situation The Author Favors William Henry Harrison for President Election of 1836 The Thurmans at Chillicothe when we had got settled, Dr. Carpenter took possession of the Scioto Gazette, and I went to work. He had bought the paper, but he knew nothing of the business. He was a good writer, however a nervous and energetic speaker, and a strong anti-Jackson politician. He was expected to give an impetus to this side in politics, and the politicians, I think, looked for too much from him. Though a capital talker, he had not the faculty of saying things so well on paper as by word of mouth. Then he was wanting in industry and application. Knowing nothing of newspaper work, he was not a good editor, though he could produce good and strong leaders. The general management of the paper fell largely to me, and as our printing force was not strong, it made pretty hard work. What added to our difficulty was a want of type. We had about two pages of advertisements that stood most of the time, and about two pages to set up each week. But we were compelled to distribute the first form to set up the second. This cramped our work and gave us no scope as to time. With our poor profit we went through the year, at the close of which the doctor sold out, thoroughly satisfied that the newspaper business was not his mission. Dr. Carpenter was altogether a character. He was a man of great natural ability in a certain way. He had a command of language that was wonderful, and he could put words together so as to give them double power of expression. His memory was equal to this power of talking, and the disposition to make use of both quite as strong. Altogether, he was a marvel in his way and he would have been an extraordinary man, but for the want of good common sense. His self-confidence was grand, but it moderated with a turn for self-criticism. His forte was in conversation, where he was always brilliant and witty. 
As a Methodist preacher, he would have been unrivaled, but he was spoiled for that by being one of the most ardent and enthusiastic of Swedenborgians. The doctrines of this faith he preached in season and out of season, and if a man would listen to him, the doctor was pretty sure to convert him to his view of the subject. I am myself indebted to him for an appreciation of the doctrines. I had been acquainted with Swedenborgians for many years, and held them in high respect, but it was for the doctor to make me understand them. He had the courage to assert what he believed, as though he did believe it, and not in the apologetic way that is much too common. He was free from cant, and talked of spiritual matters as he would of philosophy, which in his free and easy manner led him to disregard the fitness of times and occasions, and often exposed him to ridicule in his absence, for none that knew him would attempt it in his presence. My relations to the doctor were rather agreeable through this year, and I dare say, if the business had been good, my place would have been enjoyable. But he was always hard put to it, and I necessarily felt more or less of his embarrassments. The universality of his genius stood in the way of comfort. At times he wanted to direct the work of printing, and would want me to be responsible for his blunders. But he would listen to reason, and so we got along. In politics he was very decided, and indeed ultra and anti-Jackson, of course. In the summer of 1834, the middle of Jackson's second term, the opposition party, which was sometimes called the National Republican, was little else than a loose association of all who were opposed to Jackson. In Ohio it was so loose that the electoral vote of 1832 in opposition to General Jackson was known as the unpledged, with the understanding that the vote might be cast for Clay, Webster, Wirt, or anybody but Jackson. Though Jackson's electors were chosen, those who voted against him were crystallizing into a party whose leading features of politics were the protection of manufacturers and a United States bank. Henry Clay was a very well-recognized leader in this party, but he had rivals, among whom was Webster, and the election of 1832 had shown that Clay could not expect to be placed at the head of the next presidential ticket, and there seemed to be a tacit understanding that in 1836 the opposition would run different men without united action, as if to try the ground for 1840, by which time it was expected that something could be done to defeat the Democrats, who would then be running Van Buren for a second term. The subject was often talked over by the doctor and myself, and the local politicians usually discussed it when they dropped into the office, as was their custom. Various men were spoken of, but Clay was more commonly regarded as the man for Ohio to present in 1836, in training, so to speak, for 1840. Once or twice General William Harrison was mentioned, but no one seemed to favor his pretensions, or to suppose he had any. In thinking it over, I was impressed with the belief that General Harrison possessed the elements of character eminently favorable to his being named for the place. 
There was a tendency with the anti-Jackson people to regard with favor a successful military man, and though it was not so strong as to amount to the hero-worship that lifted Jackson to his place, the politicians were ready to avail themselves of the sentiment. Harrison had made a good record in the War of 1812, then only twenty years past, and still fresh in the minds of the people, and withal he was an unpretending man, whose modesty and simplicity of character, if once brought to view, would give him great strength with the masses, whose sympathy could be readily enlisted for him. He was then living on a farm near Cincinnati, and was discharging the duties of clerk of the court of Hamilton County. I suggested him one day to General James T. Worthington, a man whose opinion I valued. His reply was, Oh, that cock won't fight, and then gave me his reasons for not thinking favorably of him, growing less positive as he went on. He did not shake my confidence in the idea and I talked it up to the doctor. He heard me through, and then roared out in his peculiar way, Hurrah for Harrison! There's euphony in that, and you must have euphony in any popular cry. The very fact that the name ends in O-N is of great importance. The popular men have had such names. There was Washington, Jefferson, Madison, and Jackson. Why not Harrison? It is just the right name. We talked the matter over, and I found he agreed with me. I urged him to make a declaration for Harrison as the candidate in 1836, and proposed that he write a leader on the subject and make the announcement at once. This he concluded to do, and accordingly I set up, in conspicuous lines, for president in 1836, General William Henry Harrison, and the next issue of the Scioto Gazette was committed to Harrison. Of course, this attracted attention, and the papers all over the country remarked upon it one way or another, and as I expected, the anti-Jackson editors did not venture to offer any strong opposition, though they might not endorse it. The subject was soon agitated, and a mass meeting was called in Cincinnati to promote Harrison's nomination. The call for this meeting was signed by many hundreds, professedly without distinction of party, though few Jackson men signed it. A new paper was started in Cincinnati the next winter, devoted to his interest, which was conducted by Colonel James Allen, a man of ability but of erratic habits. The measure, however, prospered, and General Harrison was made a Whig candidate in 1836, and got the electoral votes of Vermont, 7, New Jersey, 8, Delaware, 3, Maryland, 10, Kentucky, 15, Ohio, 21, and Indiana, 9, in all, 73, when Webster got 14, White, 26, and Magnum, 11. This placed him in such a position that the party did not venture to nominate any other candidate in 1840. When I went to Chillicothe, Governor William Allen was the representative in Congress and a candidate for re-election. The opposition put in nomination William Key Bond, a lawyer of excellent standing and a man of fine education. 
who had handsomely represented the district in Congress. They made a desperate effort and succeeded in defeating Allen by a small vote. Allen was first elected to Congress in 1832 by one vote over Governor MacArthur, whose daughter he afterward married. Allen Thurman was at that time a student at law. His father, Pleasant Thurman, was a local Methodist preacher, who was also crier of the court and auctioneer. His wife was a sister of Governor Allen and his senior. Mrs. Thurman was a woman of great family pride as well as ability, but she was eminently practical, and though very poor for her social position, she managed to bring up the senator, her son, and the senator and governor, her brother, to the distinction they have enjoyed. She, being a Swedenborgian, was a friend of Dr. Carpenter, at whose house I frequently met her, and found her an agreeable and interesting acquaintance. From her character I can understand the success of her brother and son. At that time, Chillicothe was a place of more political consequence in the state than now. It had been the capital within a short period, and the importance then attached to it had not quite departed. Since that, it has had to depend upon trade, and has gradually changed its relation to other parts of the state. Chapter 27 Farming Again Studying Medicine Public Executions Slaveholders' Panic in Wheeling Broken Health Building a House The Painter's Trade Tried Financial State of the Country Traveling by Carriage to Dayton The Author Buys the Hamilton Intelligencer Position of Political Parties The Slavery Question when Dr. Carpenter sold the Gazette, I was out of a job, and as nothing offered in the way of printing, I tried farming. The fall before, that is, 1834, father sold his house and lot in Wheeling and arranged to go on to a farm in obedience to the long-accepted destiny of the family. I learned of a farm in Huntington Township in Ross County, about six miles from the town of Chillicothe, that was for sale on very reasonable terms, of which I notified father when he came on and bought it. It was very good land, but badly shaped, being hilly and cut up with two little streams. It was situated at the head of a very pretty little valley, and was altogether a pleasant sight, if properly improved. Father proposed that I should join him in the enterprise, to begin when my engagement with the doctor closed. Accordingly, we moved out to the farm in the spring of 1835. Some three years later, father sold out and quitted the farm and farming, finally. He went to Hamilton, where he bought a drug store, my brother Joseph, having studied medicine, led to this business, in which he did pretty well. I had dabbled a little in the study of medicine at odd times, and thought to adopt that profession. I decided, therefore, I would try and acquire such a knowledge of the science as would enable me to practice. I had a little money, very little, which I planned to eke out by working at typesetting. I got started in this enterprise and worked away, and studied for a while, busily, when I was taken sick and could do nothing but lie in bed. It was then near the end of December." 
Early in March I had got so much better that I concluded I would follow up the study of medicine. The course of lectures of the college had closed, and my finances required that I should go to work, which I did in a printing office not connected with any paper, where I had worked in the early part of the winter in setting up the type of a murderer's confession. This murderer, whose name was John Cohen, had lived in Pittsburgh where he married. He drank whiskey and ill-treated his wife. One morning he took a hand axe and killed her and two or three of their children. For this, of course, he was tried, convicted, and duly hanged. Hanging was then one of the public amusements that the law furnished to the depraved under the fiction of a great moral lesson. I was opposed to capital punishment, and particularly to public executions. By way of studying their effect, I attended this, which only confirmed me in my opinion. The respectable appearances of those who made up the eight or ten thousand who came from all parts of the country to see it showed that morbid curiosity was mostly the ruling sentiment in relation to it. The next summer, while we were living again in Wheeling, two young men were hung for the murder of an old man for his money. Their names were Boone Long and Tom Wintringer, a boy I had known in Steubenville. The executions were public and attended by thousands. Wheeling was then controlled by Virginia laws and influence, though the people were in sentiment more like those of Ohio. There were very few slaves, not perhaps over fifty in the city, but the few old slave-holding families exerted a great control over the place, and they affected the manner and prejudices of the slave-holding part of the state, and pretended to think the people of Ohio were inimical to them. They seemed to think that the Ohioans were ready at any time to stimulate a revolt among their handful of Negroes, whom they dared not treat as the slaves usually were treated. But this was an occasion for the masters to scare themselves, and within the town they got up a rumor as baseless as could be that the people of Steubenville, who were heartily glad to be rid of Wintringer, were going to rise en masse and rescue him. On the strength of this they called out the citizens at large to patrol the country two or three nights and days before the execution, and two military companies were called out besides. I think I never was more exasperated than when called on to do duty on this patrol, which I promptly refused to do. Though threatened with consequences, I never was visited with any. The executions came off, the city was filled with people, and the taverns and grog-shops gathered their harvest. But, to return, my health continued feeble, and I felt very sure that I should be taken down with consumption, the complaint which of all others I dreaded. The printing business I thought would bring it on, though I think differently now, and I was in despair as to what was best to do. My father-in-law had bought a lot and was building a house at Martinville, and he proposed that I should get a lot there, which was to be done on pretty easy terms. And as I had a turn for painting, it seemed to me a good plan to take up house painting, 
as a kind of work that would give me outdoor work and an active, healthful life. I returned from Cincinnati to Wheeling in pursuit of this plan, and joined him in the project of getting a lot. In the meantime, I got some jobs at painting and arranged to stay that summer in Wheeling. In the course of the summer of 1836, I bought a lot and got ready to build a little brick house, that is to say the walls, floor, and roof, in which shape it was habitable, and we went into it in November. It was a rough dwelling, but it was a shelter, and we improved it by degrees till it was plastered, papered, and painted, and was a very neat little cottage in its way. It had two rooms, with a passage between them and a lean-to kitchen. Here we lived till the spring of 1840, and on the whole I got along tolerably well. But the commercial reverses in 1838 prostrated all business of the kind that I was engaged in. Building ceased, and I found work falling off, and was led to look for something else. End of section 11